Welcome to the Blockchain DNA Podcast. This show brings you the latest in blockchain technology and global developments in business and fintech. Presented by Metaverse DNA. DNA, the Metaverse Dual Chain Network Architecture. Hi, I'm Alex Lightman. This is the Lightman Report, and this week we're going to talk about the challenge of the crypto assets. So this is the Lightman Report, enabled by DNA Metaverse. Thank you very much, DNA Metaverse. And uh, there I am, your host, Alex Lightman. So we're going to talk about security tokens, the Howey test, regulators that are trying to, and corporations trying to issue their own crypto, the Ton Network and Gram. Libra, stable coins, central bank currencies, and concepts and definition. So security tokens represent a security interest based on a transaction that constitutes a securities transaction under the Howey test. Security tokens were issued as an attempt to replace utility tokens, and in most jurisdictions, STOs are still illegal or overregulated. And the Howey test is section 2A1 of the Securities Acts, and it enumerates various financial instruments that meet the definition of a security, such as with finger quotes, such as stocks, bonds, and investment contracts. Under this four-part test laid out in the SEC versus W.J. Howey Company, i.e. what we call the Howey test, a transaction is considered an investment contract transaction and thus a securities transaction where there is an investment of money with the expectation of profits in a common enterprise from the efforts of others. Regulators are trying to stop corporations from issuing their own currencies and stablecoin. The U.S. dollar has given the United States an extra $10 trillion, as have U.S. Treasury bonds. So that's $20 trillion of free money for oil, for cars and car parts and all kinds of things that have been imported. So American regulators such as the SEC, Congress, and the CFTC have effectively blocked the launch of Facebook's Libra, well, actually, it's supposedly a separate nonprofit headquartered in Switzerland. Also, the biggest ICO of 2018 was uh, TON, which is Telegram, um, which raised $1.8 billion and is supposed to now give the investment back. And the most popular stablecoin, Tether, uh, which is also has the biggest trading volume of any cryptocurrency, last time I looked, has issues with authorities constantly looking at it. Um, Pavel Durov, who's the founder of TUN, abandoned it, and he said this, which is pretty shocking. The U.S. court declared that grams couldn't be distributed, not only in the U.S., but globally. Why couldn't they be distributed globally? Because, the, the judge said, uh, a U.S. citizen might find some way of accessing the TUN platform after it launched. So to prevent this, grams shouldn't be allowed to be distributed anywhere in the world, even if every other country in the world seemed perfectly fine with TUN. That's incredible. Libra would be a super stablecoin insured by uh, insured by basket of fiat currencies, but Facebook changed their whole approach to this. The pressure of regulators made Facebook put the project aside and abandon issuing their own stablecoin. Uh, a lot of the people who are uh, supporters and partners of that whole thing were abandoning the project. And even if Libra were will be as launched, it'll work more like a standard digital payment service 
and dropping their initial unique stablecoin approach, at least for the near term. Stablecoin, uh, a stablecoin is a crypto asset relative to some stable asset or basket of assets. There are four main kind, fiat collateralized, commodity collateralized, crypto collateralized, and non-collateralized. So you have real world collateral, crypto collateral, no collateral. Those are the three categories of stable coins. You also have a central bank digital currency or CBDC. A central bank digital currency can be described as, quote, monetary value stored electronically that represents the liability of the central bank and can be used to make payments, unquote. And crypto assets, most notably cryptocurrencies, lack the status of legal currencies. And the opposite should be true for CBDCs. Um, CBDs are, are, are envisioned by most to be a new form of central bank money. Central bank uh, digital currency, the digital yuan, China is going to become the first major economy to use a digital currency, and that will pressure other countries to set up their digital currencies. And McDonald's and Starbucks are part of that trial. And the definitions keep evolving for all these kind of things. So you have the proposed Cryptocurrency Act of 2020, but there are basically these three digital asset categories, cryptocurrencies, crypto commodities, and crypto securities. Uh, FinCEN has its cryptocurrencies, and uh, CFTC has its crypto commodities, and SEC has its crypto securities. And basically, the government really doesn't want to have privacy coins. So this is my Lightman report on the challenge of the crypto assets. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for your time. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now, back to the show. I'd like to welcome you all to a small interview on the report that Alex Lightman did on digital assets, which is a whole topic because we are experiencing a big paradigm in this area. Lots of things are changing. I would like to welcome our guest today, which is Kang Wang. He's a co-founder of Metaverse DNA. I think he's a very well-known author in the Chinese field, books on blockchain. He's a very renowned speaker worldwide for many universities of name. We are going to have him on the next cloud conference as one of our keynotes um, to explain a little bit more about passion that's really his thing right now, which is digital identity avatars and how we can introduce them in daily users' lives. But today, I want to have a small discussion about what Alex talked about in his library report, which was digital assets. Um, Ken, if you look at digital assets, I mean, due to the pandemic and due to, I would say, worldwide banking, I wouldn't call it instability, but, you know, there, there's a lot of dramatic change in that area. So how do you see that transferring these, these assets for a normal user can be safe in view of decentralized, um, you know, how is this best arranged? I think that this is a very huge topic, but I just uh, give some key points here, uh, especially from the product development perspective. Uh, when we look at the digital asset uh, in this uh, DeFi or the blockchain technology enabled world, uh, we certainly need uh, using some traditional wisdom in terms of security. First is we have to do defense in depth approach. That's not just one aspect of security, it's multiple aspects. 
So in addition to smart contract wallet security, consensus algorithm security, uh, decentralized identity security that we are working on right now, and uh, decentralized exchange or DAPP. So also there's uh, the people process and policy perspective. So it's uh, a whole suite of things that we need to know. But particularly uh, for your question, when we try to transfer the digital asset, what need to be careful with. So that's uh, in terms of the uh, digital asset, it's uh, uh, the smart contract usually need to be secure. Like if your smart contract itself is not secure, the hacker can transfer your asset to their own wallet and usually you cannot get it back. Uh, in certain cases, you may be able, right? But in most cases, you cannot. A smart contract is deployed, it's permanent. Like uh, unless you build in some upgrade or pause mechanism, right? It will not stop. So uh, that's a need to be careful. But uh, it's not just a smart contract. It's also wallet. Like uh, is this wallet, your own wallet? Are you you holding your own key? Or is uh, the uh, exchange holding your key? Or is someone else holding your key? So there's, uh, I think, uh, uh, I don't want to get too deep into it. Just uh, uh, a, a very high level kind of talking point is a defense in-depth approach and we have to make sure that it's uh, people policy and process. It's not just uh, uh, technology. If you look at the European situation, which is sort of more specific with the GDPR laws that have been implemented some time ago, um, mm -hmm. with the digital identity, you store that on the blockchain, right? And that's so and that conflicts with the right to be forgotten, as we call it in Europe, which basically says that I need to be able to go to any enterprise or, I would say, organization of some kind to say, look, uh, I want out. I've got that legal right. Now, on the blockchain, everything's there to stay forever. So um, there are some solutions for decentralized systems where you only have the hash, you know, and you store these data in a separate database, which means you can take it out. How do you see this specific solution working in a decentralized environment like Metaverse DNA is now planning? Yes, yeah, so in terms of the DID, the decentralized identity perspective, the key idea is the user holding this identity, not the platform, not the third party. So uh, if it integrates with something, some data on chain, the current best practice is you don't put the PII data on the chain. You put the hash of this data on the chain. And the, the, uh, the benefit of the hash is one way, right? One way direction. You basically uh, can put a like a three gig or three uh, uh, terabytes of data uh, on chain with just uh, 256 bytes of hash. So right. <laughs> it's not reversible. You cannot really, right? So it's more like a check the integrity of the data if it's uh, uh, being altered or not. 
So that's the kind of the best practice, especially to deal with the GDPR, like the, you, know, you said, the right to be forgotten. So if the data is not in the platform, it's uh, the user has a control of it. That's the beauty of DID, right? So there's nothing actually recorded on the chain. It's only the hash. So you, so hash, it's uh, like there's no way even with quantum computing, some people get a misconception about quantum computing can break the hash back to its original context. That's not true. That's yeah. impossible. So no, thank God. The, the association, right? But, this, but it cannot break the hash. <laughs> I, I have asked and specifically to explain this because Obviously, our own identity is such a hot item right now in a lot of areas where our identity is basically, I wouldn't say compromised, but, you know, due to the pandemic, we had to give up a lot of our privacy. We had to give up a lot of things that belong actually to our own identity. Mm -hmm. So um, there, there is concern worldwide. How far is this supposed to be going? And is it all okay? And if this new technology caters for a solution where this could never be compromised, I think that's why I had you explain this very well, Ken. Thank you um, to indicate to our viewers how important this is. Now, Alex, if we go back to your field, you know, economic growth, perceiving that this um, digital identity holding your own key and, and, and being able to control that through the hash technology. How do you see the economic perspective in growth in the financial transaction sector? Because obviously everything changed over the last three to four months. The whole world has been a bit turned upside down. Uh, I'm a part of a men's group called Metal, Media, Entertainment, Technology, Alliance Leaders. They change their things. And there's a person who has a very good track record for investments named William Quigley. And he said that given how everybody was down on the airlines and everybody was down on cruise ships and restaurants and they collapsed, and now the flights are completely full. Uh, Lufthansa gave its planes back to leasing and now all of a sudden people want to travel again and the stocks are going back up. It proves two things. Number one, um, Nobody knows anything, and anyone who says they're an expert and knows everything is full of shit. That's what he said. I'm quoting. So it's not swearing when you're quoting. And uh, so what we see right now is that the, the underpinnings of this world financial system, and last year, glo a gross global product was about $82 trillion. And we see now statistics that say that the United States is only going to have its economy shrink by 5% and China is going to grow by 1% and all these. We don't know what the real numbers are. But what we do know is that the, the, with all of the riots and the looting in my neighborhood around me in Santa Monica, 350 stores were destroyed in the space of mostly in two hours and nine of them were set on fire. And the protesters were going for the gas station, the Chevron station in downtown, to fill up bottles to make Molotov cocktails. Because their intention, I have heard, was to burn down the central business district of Santa Monica, which is the main nightlife place where that's free of gangs and very safe, other than Universal City Walk. So it's a, it's a very major uh, tourist area uh, with big mall and all that. And uh, the owner came out with an automatic weapon and threatened a crowd of 30 people. 
And three times they rushed him and three times he held them off. Otherwise, I would be possibly my building would have been burned down. And, uh, and there were, instead of no people dying, maybe hundreds could have died. And so with the world looking at that, they're going to look at the fact that the whole underpinning of the world economy is the US dollar, is this fiat currency. And now that China, with the second largest economy, and with the, the drop so much in US GDP, for all we know, even in dollar terms, it could be possible that China has the largest GDP in dollar terms. It already was the largest in purchasing power parity for, for years. In other words, your dollar can buy more, uh, more in China than it can in the United States overall, according to economists. And so people are going to be looking to diversify their assets and have non-correlating assets. So they're going to want to put bigger and bigger chunks into digital assets. And the, the biggest thing keeping that from happening is that people don't know about the security. And I will add only that, uh, that if they can just be familiar with one concept, if we had just, I remember when we had the word World Wide Web during the OJ Simpson trial, it was the single most used phrase in the news that just popped up out of nowhere. And so if we just like if we had that kind of press coverage for multi-sig wallets so that you have, let's say, five people can be signers on a wallet and you have to move any money, you have to have three of them all sign it, you know, or, or something like that. Or, and you can also have it so that those signatures can be programmed and can only work once a day or once a week, or once a month, or once a year, so that you can have it so that not only do you have to get three of the people, but you have to get it in exactly the right overlapping window when they can all do that. So if we had that one change, then I think that the growth of digital assets would be uh, in the double digits per, well, crypto-related digital assets, because of course all digital assets, I'm talking about the ones that I cover in the Lightman Report, um, I think that would grow by double digits every month for the rest of the decade. Okay. Now, Ken, if I'm just an average user and we all in our industry are looking for a broader adoption of blockchain technologies in a, in a much wider sphere, not so much blockchain as a target and not so much uh, cryptocurrencies as a goal, but to have these real use cases. Now, if I'm an average, you know, prospective user of this technology, what do you think that people should look for? Because we all know that the single point of failure in a centralized system has done us some disservice in the past. We, we you know, the industry engaged some problems in that area. So I'm the average user. What should I look for in a system to, well, be relatively assured that what I'm dealing with is a decentralized, not a single point of failure institution? Yeah, I think it's a good question, especially like ordinary consumer, it's really hard to really distinguish between a centralized environment and a decentralized environment. So some of the key things I think uh, which are relatively easily uh, for consumer to look at first, to ask uh, some questions like, uh, is the uh, platform itself its own source? Or it's closed source, right? That's maybe first question to ask. Second is, can I withdraw or deposit funds without censorship? Like if you basically, when you withdraw, you have to wait for a few uh, days, uh, someone has to look at the, the transaction 
then certainly it's a centralized. And the third is, uh, do you own your own keys? So I think for the ordinary consumer, it's really necessary to understand different kinds of wallet. Because there is offline, like hardware wallet uh, that is uh, uh, quite secure. Uh, there is a level of a different level of security, right? Then you have a hot wallet, which uh, is like on, on your uh, cell phone and uh, you can download uh, and uh, it has its own key, but the key is connected to the internet, but uh, you're still holding your own key. So it's a, a little bit more uh, secure than the wallet, uh, which is controlled by other people, like uh, in the centralized exchange. So the rule of thumb actually is like you, if you have the most of uh, funds, uh, is uh, like if you reach a certain level, you need to have most of funds in more secure environment. It's a hardware wallet, which is offline. Uh, and in order for you to do the transaction, uh, you sign it in the hardware wallet, then you scan the signed transaction. The transaction, once it's signed, it does not reveal any private key. So that you can broadcast to everyone, a signed transaction, because it's only using a signature of the private key. That's, again, using the hash and the uh, kind of asymmetric encryption, which is one way. So you, it's secure, so you can just broadcast through your hardware, uh, through your online uh, software, such as the APP, right? The uh, cell phone APP, you broadcast it. So, and then you maybe have some uh, asset in the exchange. So, but uh, uh, go back to this uh, centralization and decentralized perspective. I think one thing, uh, we have two camps in the blockchain world. One is a fundamentally decentralization. Another one is a relative decentralization. I think I, I myself is a relative decentralization camp. I don't think everyone is one, like everything is 100% decentralized. Even like when you look at the Bitcoin and Ethereum, they have a very large decentralization aspect. But if to a certain point, they do have the centralization uh, to decide, right? Uh, like uh, ETH, ETCs, fork, because of the, yeah. the door attack, causes yeah. like some centralization aspect. And uh, in the Bitcoin, you have the digital, uh, the Bitcoin core and the minor kind of centralization. So, but I think the, the key idea is uh, you in normal operation, you want to it to be decentralized. And if there is some crisis, you do need some centralization aspect to resolve the price. So, so that's my idea. Like you cannot achieve 100% decentralization. It's impossible. It's a utopia, right? But you want to have as much decentralized as possible in the normal business operation. Yes. Well, in the cloud conference that we recently had, Ari was the one to talk about what I feel is the most abused term in blockchain technology, which is the word decentralized, because everybody understands something different amongst it. 
I think if I'm a, I'm a big fan of anything that promotes wider use of this technology because I think it, it means a lot to ordinary people. Would it be, there's a lot of talk about standardization, Alex, and you know that as well. And everything I see legislation do is suppress a lot of things. Would it help if we stepped out of that circle and said, okay, here are five points. If you are a user, this is what you look at. And then you're fairly sure that you are dealing with a decentralized or semi-decentralized situation. Because what I see is we had a lot of initiative on self-regulation, all of them failed. We had a lot of regulatory attempts to organize things and they still don't come up with something definite. So I would really like both your input in this because we need to start thinking out of the box here for wider adoption. We now have the pandemic, we have financial um, inclusion for just a limited amount of the world's population. Due to COVID-19, it's only become much, much worse. We now see the digital asset area um, sort of growing. We see the traditional markets um, basically trying to implement their model into the blockchain world. Would it help if we say, let's make five basic rules so you can do your first steps and know where you are and what you do, like, you know, the, the things that Ken just related to, Alex. Because when I talk to people who don't understand anything about blockchains, you know, they just want to know what's in it for me. Is it easy to transfer assets? Can I pay with this stuff? I think uh, people want to be comfortable with the use of it. Would you think that it would help if we came up with like five basic outlines, like, okay, if you look at this and that's there? Well, uh, sure, it would. And and we have the example, Bitcoin has been a commercial product. You could buy it uh, or you could trade it, uh, send it around to people since January 3rd, 2009. So it's been out now for 11 months, uh, 11 years and six months. That's quite a long time. And it has never been uh, successfully hacked. There have been a, a couple couple attacks, but they, they were rolled back very quickly, I think three of them. And so we can already see what the elements are. And uh, the first one is, it, you know, they basically the, uh, had never been successfully hacked in a way that led to people getting away with loot, uh, number one. Number two, it's open source, right? All the code is available to see and anybody can see it. And every new thing, uh, people are making it, uh, putting it out on GitHub or other software depository, the internet archive. Uh, number three, you have uh, other people who are able to fork the code. And so forks are, are an easy way to see if something is decentralized because anytime you disagree with the core developers, well, just go off and make your own if you want to. And that's very, very healthy. And so the last time I looked, and I'd like to, I wish there was a statistic, like I can see at any moment. Uh, well, and then here's the fourth one, to know the supply through Google. You should be able to just Google the supply. So you can type in number of Bitcoin and you can find it to the Satoshi at any given moment. And then lastly, you should have some kind of predictable emission rate. So you know how much there is, and then you can go backwards and let's say that the, the algorithms are set up so that there's a new block every 10 minutes or so. You know, and up until the halvening, it was 12 and a half Bitcoin in a block. And it's uh, or the reward for mining and, and being able to package all of the blocks. Um, and now, uh, it, you know, it's uh, 6.25. So 
to have the emission rate known so that we can go back in time and forward in time and know what it is. And then finally, what's the total amount that will ever be mined? And to have some mechanism by which anybody can apply to mine or do whatever the process is. So I would think that that's, those are five elements and we can see it working. And the proof is, and I wish that this is what I was getting at before, I think that something like 92% of all the total aggregate market value of crypto is based on the Bitcoin code. Now, does that mean it's the best? No, but it just means that we can build crypto on a fairly solid foundation for something that's entirely decentralized. Uh, so we see that there can be anti-fragility in the Nassim Taleb uh, uh, terminology, something that gets better the more that it's stressed. And so we've had the, the, the declaration that Bitcoin is dead you know, over 600 times in the major media, and yet it still keeps living. It's unkillable at this point. And so that should be, I guess, the last criteria is it can't be killed by the Chinese uh, Central Committee or Donald Trump or Steve Mnuchin. There's no one person, there's no one entity that can kill it worldwide. So maybe it's illegal in your market or your country, but it's not, you can't deny the whole world it that. So those are the elements, and that's even more than five. And I don't think you have to have all of them to call it decentralized, but there, there, there is uh, one last criteria, and that is that the Securities and Exchange Commission declares it decentralized. So they've made this finding for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not a security because of that. And Ethereum is not a security because of that, because it's decentralized. So we even have objective measures did they say it or did they not say that it was decentralized? Uh, that's, that's what I have. To conclude our vision, because we are going to talk more about this subject because there's so many angles to discuss. One thing I thought of as I was preparing for this interview, I've been in the business quite a long time now. And every time something happens in the blockchain space that makes the news in a negative way, it's sort of, very focused, you know, there is really a loop over it. Well, we always tend to forget that in the single point of failure banking existing economic system, there's an annual amount of fraud that would, you know, basically solve all our debts in Europe, credit card fraud, things that are stolen from banking. Cybercrime in the United States is 400 billion a year. We don't hear anything as to the extent as to the way anything is portrayed when something happens in the blockchain space. That was the first thing I thought of. It's not in comparison at all. Seems to me like everything that happens in the blockchain or cryptocurrency space is all of a sudden uh, 100 times as big as anything that's going on in the traditional sense. And the other thing that you marked so well, Alex, is about amounts. Okay. We all know that both in Europe, United States, everywhere, the printing presses are running just to make money. And how this is possible for normal folks to understand is very, very difficult. They sort of think, well, I don't know how I have one in the basement and solve my mortgage and my debts with it. It's in comparison, very out of balance in my personal feeling. And I'm not a coder, as everyone well know, but it's very hard for me to understand that this big gap is still existing in the comparison through traditional systems and the new ways of, of blockchain technology. 
I want to close that off because um, we are going to talk some more about that subject, about these comparisons, because for consumers, at the end of the day, it's very, very important. It's their livelihood. You know, the assets that they gather over a lifetime take care of their retirement, takes care of the college education of the kids. It's very vital that we give some attention, I think, to these topics. I want to thank you both so much for your contribution, Alex, for doing the report of last week, which I find highly interesting because digital assets is one of the big growth areas. And Ken, as co-founder of Metaverse DNA and everything around it, we are going to talk some more about security and hope to see you soon again in the Lightning Report interviews and oh. definitely in the next cloud conference. Gives me also the opportunity to announce there is going to be a next cloud conference and we will be revealing the dates and who's going to talk about that in the very, very near future. So thanks for today and uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks, um, Ken. Thanks, Anamika. Thank you. Yeah, next see you again, Alex. See you soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Blockchain DNA podcast. Make sure to visit our website and follow us on social media at DNA by Metaverse or at MVS DNA. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.